I invite you again to turn with me in your copy of God's Word, uh, this time to the New Testament, to the book of Matthew. Our text this morning can be found on page 810 of that pew Bible in the rack in front of you. Uh, we are reading Matthew 5, uh, verses 13 to 16. Uh, in our sermon series to the book of Matthew, we have come to this uh, well-known Sermon on the Mount. We started it last week, uh, where Jesus is up on a mountain teaching his disciples, uh, giving them, in a sense, a, a new law. It's an old law sort of uh, made new. He is teaching them what it's like to live in his kingdom. We saw last week in the Beatitudes uh, that the place of blessing in Christ's kingdom is where we least expect it to be. All right? so we are called to, to go down, to lose ourselves, uh, to empty ourselves, that we might be filled and lifted up by Christ. What does it look like to live in line with those Beatitudes in a world that doesn't live that way or doesn't value those blessings? We're going to read of that uh, in our verses, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it will give light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me again? Lord, we know that you are in wor- at work in this world. And we know that you work through a frail, sinful, weak, and weary people like us. Fathers, your word paints a picture of how we are called to live and who we are called to be in a dark and fallen world. I pray that your spirit would breathe fresh nourishment and encouragement into our weary hearts today. And we would not leave this place under the burden of your law. We would leave this place rejoicing in the work of your gospel and the power of your spirit. Speak to us in these few minutes, O oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an old saying that goes a little bit, goes a long way. You may remember that from... Your childhood, mom or dad saying it to you, maybe you say it to your kids or your grandkids. A little bit goes a long way. Right, we can talk about a little kindness goes a long way. A little respect goes a long way. A little manners go a long way, right? Or as my mom used to tell me when I was a kid and eating a plate of eggs and I would reach for the salt shaker and just start dumping that thing all over my eggs, my mom would say, Sean, a little salt goes a long way. <laughs> I still oversalt my eggs. <laughs> a little salt, a little light goes a long way. These texts, this ver- these verses are familiar to us. They tell us who we are as the people of God in the world. We are called salt and we are called light. And in the hands of our king, 
And by the power of his spirit, a little bit of that goes a long way in a fallen world. As we jump into this text, as we begin to look at what salt means and what light means and the impact and the effect that those small elements have in the world around them, we need to start by just understanding what Jesus is trying to show us at the very beginning of this contrast. And Jesus is telling us before anything else that his people are different than the world. You note both, both verse 13 and verse 14 begin with the word you. So he's talking to his followers. He's talking to his disciples. And he's saying you are something that the world isn't. You are something or someone that has an effect or an impact on the world around you. And the way you do that, the way that God does that, is by you being different. We can't understand what any of these verses are telling us unless we wrap our minds around the idea that God has made his people different from the world. And the reason he's made us different from the world that we're going to see further on in our text is to draw glory to himself. That God is about the business of glorifying himself in his own name. And he uses his people small, insignificant specks of light and grains of salt to draw glory to himself. Or to put the whole sermon in a sentence this morning, God makes his people different from the world to draw glory to himself. He makes you, if you are a Christian, he has made you different from the world for the very purpose of God drawing glory to himself. You are different. Why are you different? How are you different? How am I different? The difference is that we are made like Christ. I gave it away in the introduction to the hymn we just sang. But Jesus says, before he says that you are the light of the world, he says that he is the light of the world. Jesus is the light that has come from God. We've already seen this. We saw it last chapter in Matthew that he is He describes himself fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah as a light has dawned on a people in darkness. That Jesus, the arrival of Jesus to a sinful and cursed and condemned people is like unto the dawning of the sun at the end of a dark night. And Jesus tells his followers, don't miss this, he tells us this is who we are. This verse does not say, go and be salt. Go and make yourself light. It doesn't say, look, y'all say you're Christians. You're not very good at it. So why don't you just go be more salty and shine more light in the world? That's not what these verses say. You say begin, and we we have to begin at the beginning this morning with the gospel itself. That God takes sinful and condemned people. People have, who have no right to be called salt in the world, who have no right to be called light in the world. And by his grace and his mercy, he draws us out of darkness. He shines the light of the gospel into our heart. He gives us a new heart that we are reborn by his grace and his mercy alone. And he makes us that which we are not, that which we are not naturally. He makes us something new. He makes us someone new. The rest of this 
text, the rest of this sermon is quite frankly for Christians. It's for, for you, the kingdom of God. Now some of you aren't in the kingdom of God because you don't believe in the Christ. You are not the salt of the earth. You are not the light of the world. And I hope and pray along with the rest of us in here that you would see your need this very morning for that light. That you would see that in your own sin, you remain dwelling in darkness and you cannot come out of it yourself. And that God tells us in his word that your only hope is the light of the gospel, is the light of the world, is Jesus himself. To come and shine in your hearts and to give you the gift of faith and believe upon him. That you too might be changed, renewed, and transformed. So we begin this morning not with a list of things to do, We begin this morning with the the great checklist of our salvation, all checked off by Jesus. And now who does he tell us that we are? And I invite you, as the people of God, to hear who he tells you that you are this morning. As he calls us the salt of the earth and the light of the world, I want to show you two important realities for the people of God. Particularly important realities for us as a different people. What does it mean for us to be different? I first want to show you the dangers that we face as a different people. Verses 13 to 15, the dangers that we face as a different people. So Jesus is telling you that you're different. He's calling you salt. He's calling you light. But you live in a world in which you face many dangers and The shape of that danger, as Jesus goes on to explain these metaphors, is that there is a pressure on every one of us not to be different. Jesus has made us different, but we experience a pressure in this world not to be different. If you want to know what that pressure is like, just put yourself back in those middle school years and you're trying to figure out what clothes to wear to school that day. (laughs) That was my biggest fear. I'm going to wear something out of style. I'm going to say something and everyone's going to know how different I am, right? There's the pressure to conform, to be like everyone else. That's a a pressure that a different people feel in the world. And each one of these two metaphors tells us a little bit about that pressure. The first metaphor of salt tells us that we feel the pressure to water down our witness, to water down our witness. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? I mean, if you were just dumping salt onto your eggs over and over again, you can't taste any difference. What are you going to do with that salt shaker? You're going to throw it out. The salt's no good. Now, some of you are way more into science than I am, and you could probably affirm that salt actually, it can't really lose its saltiness. It's not... At least that's what I read. That's not a a chemical thing that can happen, that salt can lose its saltiness. Jesus, of course, knows that. So what's he talking about? He's talking about salt in the ancient Near East that would come from, usually, salt marshes, or like from the area around the Dead Sea. And that salt had lots of other stuff mixed into it, mixed in with it, lots of impurities. And so to make salt that's effectively salty... They would have to go through a process of removing the impurities. And so you have sort of pure salt and all the other non-salty stuff is pulled out of it. The metaphor here is that the church, the people of God, are distinct from the world. 
But just as salt loses its saltiness, not by something happening to an individual grain of salt, but rather because it is mixed in with the other elements around it, so do the people of God lose their saltiness as the world is mixed in with us. Does that make sense? The more we get the other stuff mixed in among us, the less salty we will be. Because kingdom disciples are called to look different than the world around us. Now, there's, a, there's, there's sort of a surface way we can think about this. I mean, we can sort of think, well, okay, that means I guess if I don't drink or smoke or chew or gamble or anything like that, then if I keep all of those external things out of my life, then sure, I can sort of be pure, right? I can avoid the world. I can say that salty salt. But there's something sort of deeper going on here. Because what what characterizes the people of God is not an external righteousness. No, to go back to the Beatitudes, it's who we are in our hearts. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. That's the the emptiness and the, the poverty of spirit. It's a heart that is crying out on and is completely relying upon God that has no hope in and of itself. That empty heart that goes out and lives in the world will begin to be intermingled with an ethic in the world around us that is the exact opposite. The ethic of the world around us is not be weak, it's to be strong. Don't go be poor, go be rich. Don't be meek, be confident and assertive and aggressive and and pursue power. See, the ethic of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus is everything that's this upside down in the world around us. But as we seek to live, as we aim to embrace these places of blessing, the world wants to turn that upside down and we feel the pressure to water down our witness, to look less and less like the Beatitudes and the blessings of Christ and look more and more like the blessings of this world. And that's just the, that's just the pressure that we face as salt. There's a second pressure and that's the pressure we face as light. The pressure of light is not to water it down in verse 14 and 15. It's to cover it up altogether. It's the, the pressure we feel to cover up our witness. There's actually two metaphors for the price of one with light. The first is the city on a hill. Uh, this is not the, the, the Puritan view of America. It's not JFK's Camelot and sort of America as the pace setter for the world. A city on the hill, it's, it's just literally that in the, pic, in the image. It's a city in the ancient Near East that is on raised ground that at night when there's no electric light around and everything is pitch black, that city burning the lamps can be seen by travelers from far away. It's like a beacon leading them to safety. And why would you cover that up? You wouldn't block that out, Jesus is saying. Or on a smaller level, it's like a lamp in a house. It's like at night when, again, they don't have indoor electricity, don't have any electricity. They would light an oil lamp and they would put it where? Under a cover so that no light would show in the house? No, they would raise it up. They would put it so that it could cast as much light as possible in the house. I mean, you know what this is like when your power goes out and you scramble around for the candles and you light some candles in your house and you set them and elevated positions to light up the room. That's what Jesus tells us the people of God are like. But he has to warn us not to cover up that light. 
Why in the world would he have to warn us not to cover up his light shining through us? Well, it's because we feel a pressure in this world to cover up our witness. It's okay for you to be a Christian. Just, just kind of hide it when you're around other people, right? <laughs> your Christianity is fine as long as it's in the privacy of your own home. When you come out to the world around you, you need to cover that up. And to be honest, often in our flesh, we want to cover that up too. I mean, where did Jesus just finish talking in the Beatitudes? The final Beatitude is, blessed are those who are persecuted. Nobody wants to be persecuted. So if I can just kind of blend in with the world around me, they're not going to give me weird looks. They're not going to leave me out of the group texts, right? They're not going to say harsh words to my face about my God and about my Savior. Why are we tempted to cover up the light of Christ shining in us? It is that pressure and persecution in the world around us. Jesus gives us these warnings. And in so doing, I believe he's calling us to resist the pressure to not be different. You see, he has made us different. The world around us tries to make us the same. And Jesus is warning us in order that we might resist the pressure to be different, to not be different. Paul says in Romans 12 verse 2, Do not be conformed to the world. You see, salt and light is only good if it's different. What good is a flashlight if it doesn't shine any light? What good is salt if it doesn't have any saltiness? It is thrown out and it is trampled underfoot. One commentator says salt and light affect their environment by being distinctive or by being different. If we lose our difference, we lose our witness. So what do we do when we're feeling unsalty? What are we doing when we realize the light of God shining through me is pretty dim? When we are beat down, when the pressure of the world, quite frankly, is winning... And man, it seems to win more than we feel like we're winning. Remember, these are the words of Jesus. And he is the light of the world. And his light never grows dim. His light never flickers and it never fades. That he stands ready with the gospel of renewal for all of the beat down and the weary and the exhausted people of God. The gospel of our Savior renews and restores us. One theologian has said the church, the worship of the church is like a resalinization factory. That's a made up word. But a factory that injects saltiness back into salt. (laughs) Or like a flashlight that's not powered by batteries, but it's powered uh, by solar panels. And the light from the sun gives the, the energy to the flashlight that can then go and shine forth. That when we gather to worship our Savior, when we are renewed by the gospel of Jesus, it has the effect of distilling the the impurities of the world out of us. And that we are strengthened and restored by the power of the Spirit working in the means of grace in the church of Christ. That his word 
and his sacraments and the prayers and fellowship of the saints renew and restore the, the, the salt and the light of the dim and unsalty, weary people of God. It strikes me as bizarre, to say the least, that there are Christians who seem to say that they don't need the reviving power of God. That somehow their saltiness and their light is unassailable. And they don't need the renewing power of fellowship with the saints. They don't need to sit under the faithful preaching of the gospel. They don't need to come regularly to the Lord's table and be nourished and strengthened by him. What are, what are we saying about ourselves when we ignore the very streams of mercy through which the light of God, light, the light of God shines into our hearts? We are called salt and light. The pressure of the world removes that salt and dims that light. But we, by the faithfulness of God, are renewed time and time again by the power of Jesus that he might send us back into the world with our saltiness and our light restored by his spirit. We don't face these dangers alone. We face them relying on him and his power. What does he do? What is God's purpose of making and restoring us as salt and light? Well, after seeing the dangers that we face, I want to show you the impact that we make. The impact that we make as a different people. That's just verse 16. How does salt and light affect the environment around it, right? What is the effect that these little things have? Now, Jesus doesn't actually tell us the effect that salt has on the environment around it. I'm sure you have heard sermons or you've read books all about the particular uses of salt in the ancient Near East. Uh, there's, there's a lot of them, right? There's a lot of stuff that salt does, uh, right? Salt can, can preserve meats before refrigeration. And so some say, as Christians, we preserve the, the rotting world around us by our own righteousness. Or some say that uh, salt flavors food, and so the world around us is dull and flavorless, and Christians impact our world by adding zest and flavor to it. Some say that salt is a fertilizer, and it is spread in the ground to help crops grow, and so we sort of affect the world around us by leading to some sort of, of growth. Some say that salt heals. It's a disinfectant on the wound. It burns, but it heals in the long run, and so we as Christians... We, we sort of burn in the people around us, but we heal them as well over time. There's, there's a lot more. One commentary had 11 different uses of salt and applied every one to the effect of the church has. I, quite frankly, I don't know. Um, I, I think Jesus doesn't tell us for a reason. The, the metaphor is not for us to determine the exact use of salt in the ancient Near East and model our mission around it. The image is just be different. Be who you have, are made to be, and Jesus will use that difference in the world around you. For light, on the other hand, he tells us exactly what it's for. He tells us that light shines before others. So it's, it's really that metaphor I want us to focus on, how we understand the impact we make through the impact that light makes. The first impact is that our good works are seen. All right, you see that in verse 16. In the same way, 
Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. All right, so a couple steps to get there. Number one is that Christians do good works. That's what comes out of us by the power of God's spirit are good works. Salty and shiny people are people who are doers of good works. Now, what are good works? Well, good works are what God tells us to do in his Bible. When we obey God's word, we are doing good works. God's word is most clearly seen in the commands of the Ten Commandments. In the New Testament, it's probably most clearly seen right here in the Sermon on the Mount, as we will work through it in the next couple months. Good works are the fruit of our faith. They are born out of faith in Christ. Good works do not lead to faith in Christ. Faith in Jesus leads to good works. And our good works are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We cannot do them alone. God's Spirit must work through us in order that we would bear the fruit of good works. So Christians don't try to do good things in order that God would love us and save us. That's the reverse of the order. The order is that God has loved us by sending his son Jesus to save us, that his spirit gives us a new heart, and out of that new heart and new life, by the power of God, we bear the fruit of good works. Jesus tells his followers, don't cover the lamp. What he means by that is don't cover up your good works. God is at work in you. He is producing he is bearing fruit in your life it's not actually your job to bear fruit that's the holy spirit's job your job is don't cover it up your job is don't hide it you know the the translation here is sort of fascinating jesus says let your light shine before others that's what that's what our esv version says that's what most of the english translations say there are a couple that say shine your light before others Now, you hear the difference, right? If I tell you to go out here and go shine your light or let the light that he is already shining through you shine, that's very different, isn't it? I think the the wooden, the proper translation is probably shine your lights, but the translators accurately reflect the, the metaphor that it's not our own light. It's our job to uncover what God is doing in and among us. So how are our good works seen by others? This is kind of a tricky question. Jesus will say in Matthew 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Well, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to bear the fruit of good works, but I I don't need anybody to see it. But I'm not supposed to cover it up. Well, Jesus is talking in, in chapter 6. He's given us a, a serious warning about the motivation of our good works. Are we motivated to do good works before others for the glory of God or for the glory of ourselves? So we have that warning in mind. And then Jesus, as salt and light, he just puts us in the world and he just calls us to live as who we are. To, to be who we already are. To live as Christians in a fallen world. In an unsalty and dark world, live as the salt and light of the world. 
Or as Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. What's the key word there? Among. Among whom? That we are put as the church among the world. Right? We're not to go and live in some monastery and cover up the evidence of God's work in our life. No, we go out into the world. Just as you would scatter salt. Just as you would shine light. So does God send us out into the world to live amongst our neighbors, to live amongst our enemies. That he would bear fruit in us that would be seen by others. And what do they see that's so different? They see the Beatitudes. We are called to embrace the lowly position. To embrace the poverty of spirit. To embrace the place of mourning. To embrace those who, the place of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are not a people that have it all together. We do not believe in a theology of glory that in this life we are overcomers and we are victorious and we are confident and we have everything put together in the church and in our families and in our lives and in our jobs and in the world. That's not who we are. We are a hungry, thirsty, and needy, and poor people who live in a world that denies that they are any of those things. And as we live honestly, before the face of God and before the face of our neighbors, we will look radically different. And the gospel, the light of Jesus, will shine through us as we live among the world. That's the first impact that we have. The second impact is that our God is glorified. We see that at the end. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our goal, our aim in life, or as the old theologians called it, our chief end is to glorify God. Is to give the praise and the honor and the glory to our saving and redeeming God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That all of our lives, that all of our works, that all of our actions, that all of our words are intended to glorify and point to our God. If we are hungering and thirsting and meek and poor, the arrows of our lives point to the one that we so desperately need. If we are full and rich and confident, the arrows of our life point at us. Jesus calls us to do good works that others might see them in order that God might be glorified. Now, how is God glorified in other people seeing the people of God doing good works? Well, in, in a general sense, there's just sort of an appreciation if the world looks in and they see the church caring for those very people that the world does not care for. Well, that's a pretty powerful testimony that the world would at least maybe give some credit to God for. But I think there's a, there's a deeper sense of glorifying God that Jesus is getting at. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's this sense that, that at the return of Jesus, Gentiles who have seen the lived change of their neighbors in the church will have believed upon their God and they will have repented of their sin and they will have trusted him for salvation. So the the specific glory, I think, that Jesus is talking about is the glory of believing in this God. Not just looking at him from afar and saying, wow, isn't that impressive? No, actually trusting him, giving our lives over to him and believing upon Christ that we might be saved. So the application is that your actions have an evangelistic witness to the world around you. That the way in which salt and light exists in a fallen world, by the grace of God, shines the witness of the gospel to those around us. So a couple closing thoughts on what it might look like to live and bear fruits of good works among our neighbors. Number one, I think it means that we, as the people of God, we at least need to let our neighbors know that we are Christians, right? You have good neighbors and you have bad neighbors, right? Some of your good neighbors aren't Christians and some of your bad neighbors are Christians, right? Sadly. So you can't always know just by looking at how green their lawn is. We need to let our neighbors know, our coworkers know, our classmates know, our family know that, that we are Christians, that we believe in the Christ, we believe in Jesus. There can be subtle ways to do this. There can be ways that are maybe not so awkward to do this, but it is helpful as we are meeting people and building relationships with people simply to lay the groundwork that they know that we are Christians. And then, number two, we just live like Christians. We live among the people around us. We live among the world. We don't need to flaunt our good deeds. We don't need to hide our good deeds. We don't need to build ourselves up in front of our neighbors. We don't need to tear ourselves down. We, we live honest and repentant and growing lives because that's what God's doing in our hearts. And we live it as much as we can transparently in front of the world around us. It is a testimony to live a righteous life in front of our neighbors. It is a deeper testimony to live a repentant life in front of our neighbors. And I think that's actually harder. And then as we let people know that we are Christians, as we aim to live a Christian life around them, we pray that God would open doors, that we could explain the hope that's within. They would ask, why, why are you different? Why are you living according to this strange upside-down list of blessings that makes no sense in the world? Maybe those doors open as you ask them about their faith, as you ask them about their story, as you ask if you can share a bit of yours with them. Think about the ways that you have become a Christian, the way that you became a Christian. Was it out of nowhere just a lightning bolt out of the blue, you hear the gospel and there's no person, there's no personality attached to it? Maybe. 
Or maybe you saw the impact that God had on your parents, or on a teacher, or on a pastor, or on a friend. And it was seeing that changed life, seeing the light shine through those good works that began to soften your heart. That when you heard the gospel, you were eager and ready to repent and believe. Jesus has placed us in the world to live out the changed life amongst our neighbors that we might soften them and encourage them to hear the words of the gospel that they will hopefully hear on our lips. I want to encourage you as we close this morning that small things can have a big impact, that small people can have a big impact. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson has said this, Like salt, Christians may seem small and insignificant, powerless in a power-mad society. Yet, they have the ability to influence every segment of it and permeate the whole. Salt is cheap. Its value is minimal. But salt has unusual properties that far exceed its value. A little bit of salt can go a long way. I wonder if you're the only Christian when you go into work tomorrow. I wonder if you go to class, to school tomorrow, and you sit in a classroom, and you're the only Christian there. Maybe you're going to go home to a family, and you're the only Christian in the family. You're going to go home after church into your neighborhood, and you're going to drive down the street, and you're the only Christian on your street. And you have thought to yourself sometimes, man, life would be a lot easier if I had more of God's people around me in my life. I sort of hate being the only one in my class. I hate being the only one at work. And Jesus is telling you, he's he's putting wind in your sails this morning, that you are there as his salt and his light. That he has scattered and shined you into a dark world that you, by the power of his spirit in you, would bear the fruit of good works and the world would see and glorify your God in heaven. A little bit of salt, a little bit of light, and all the glory goes to our Father. The light has dawned in your heart. Let that light shine before others. Let us pray. Lord, you know that we can grow so weary and worn down. You know we look around us and we think that we are having no impact, that we are bearing no fruit, that nobody sees anything that we do. That little fruit that we bear, nobody even sees it. Oh God, encourage your saints this morning. Encourage your children. Encourage us that Christ came, and in this world, he was an insignificant player. He was on the outskirts. He was poor and needy. He did not conquer, but he died. Encourage us, O God, to know that by his death we have life. By his resurrection, we are gifted the resurrection unto eternal life. And now, in a weary and needy world, give us faith in Jesus that we would persevere this week in bearing fruit as salt and light. And, oh God, bring us back. Bring us back to your church. Bring us back to your people. Renew and restore our light and our saltiness. 
we would shine a light of Jesus and you would receive all the glory in heaven. In his name we pray. Amen.